Greetings, ladies and mental gents, and welcome to this patch video for the web novel First Contact, written by Ralts Bloodthorn, which is available on both Royal Road and HFY. The links for them will be down below. And as always, I hope that you enjoy, and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. First Contact, Chapter 64 Rickson. Rickson opened his eyes, his mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson was all his ways of flicker. The firmware on the onboard warboy load up and then went clear. He was in a dropship across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release from the jobsip was, well, dropping. Nuclear fire launched near the dropship as it popped chafe and flares, brought its battle screens and slammed its electronic warfare suite to maximum power, brought up the targeting system's arrays, saw the massive armored continent below it and got off three missiles with the seekers primed to find and lock onto target's guidance wavelengths. Rickson felt the ship shudder, roll slightly. He looked at the right, where Hepra had next to him. He saw the thermonuclear forge lance of energy rip through the ship, a split second, a neurons firing worth at the time, frozen as a sudden molten energy blew through the ship, reaching for him in the talons of liquid energy surrounding the halo that released a particle beam. The dropship exploded less than a kilometer from the huge ship that it had dropped from. I die... Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rival opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware on the onboard warboy load up, and it went clear. He was on a dropship across from him with Trollrek. His visor had just cleared. Rickson stuck out his tongue at Trollrek, who snorted. I live! Rickson heard a docking clamps release from the dropship and was, uh, well... Dropping, the dropship nosed down, firing its thrusters, hurtling towards the vast ocean of armor below it. It got the battle screens up, popped chafe and flares, threw EW to the max and rolled to the left. Rickson felt it as the ship suddenly tried to go in every direction at once, engines howling and shaking the entire ship. Rickson felt the missile launchers go rapid fire as the ship corkscrewed down to a precursor ship, so massive it generated a natural gravity field. The ship suddenly screamed and began to tumble, end over end. A missile meant to gut the capital ship hit the dropship dead in the nose, reducing it to a smear of atomic vapor. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker. The firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. He was in a dropship across from Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek winked at him, dabbing in a piece of gum. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release, and the dropship's was... Well, dropping fast, rolling as soon as it was clear of the massive ship's battle screens, it flew through the chafe and vaporized armor of its own corpses, bringing up EW, popping a drone, and letting loose an entire load of missiles in one screaming, jittering ejaculation of guided nuclear penetration missiles full 
of dancing, capering warboys, celebrating to slam themselves against the armor of the enemy. The dropship spun, rolled, and corkscrewed in the omni-sensor pace, seeing where the two-point defense batteries were down. The warboys computed a blind spot and jerked the dropship down to it and launched a second flight of missiles and ejected a thermal core. Rickson yawned as the point defense cannon, shooting at the shells of missiles raining down upon the armored death machine, hit the dropship. It exploded into fragments. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek rolled his eyes and both he and Rickson tabbed another piece of stim gum to chew on. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release on the dropships was, well, dropping. Controlled fall boosted by afterburners as the ship dropped out of its mother's protection. It fired up its own battle screens, sent its EW howling across the spectrum, and launched every missile it could lay its hands on, aiming for a weakened point defense battery on the starboard and the massive NCV battery to the port. Rickson felt the ship go wildly evasive, fly-by-wire system doing its job and letting the blocky-looking dropship quickly respond to the pilot's mental commands. It already was designed so that the dropship wanted to go in every direction at once, only the fly-by-wire system allowing it to be controlled, which meant that the pilot wanted it to go in a direction the ship responded quickly because it already wanted to go in that direction. The dropship was firing everything it had as soon as it came into range, smashing at the point of fence, main and secondary batteries. Computed it had left the cloud of chafe, deposited it by itself and others so it fired off another set. The wavelength shortened and more precise and the dropship's omnisensors recorded more data, sending it back to the mothership. It hit the retro, slowing, trying to get ready to land. The main battery NCV shot caught it dead center when it got between the cannon and the heavy cruiser nearly two light seconds away. It exploded. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware on the onboard our boy load up. Then it went clear. Rickson sneezed in reflex after seeing everything in front of him and turned inside out. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek shook his head and then laughed silently behind his faceplate. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was moving, powering, going through full thrust and propping shaft and flares into the diffuse cloud that was already becoming ineffective. Dropship Tango 331 Alpha took a hit when it slammed into a piece of molten metal that had gotten through the carrier's shields. It spun out of control and slammed into the neighbors. Rickson had enough time to see the hull buckle before everything exploded. He managed to start a sigh. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with the onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. 
Rickson finished the sigh and shook his head. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek had the weird look on his one gets when one started to yawn, got killed, reborn, and the body didn't know whether or not to yawn. Rickson snickered at him. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was powering through the debris of shaft cloud, the engines thundering. Its EW and point defense had been updated, the warboy knowing the wavelengths and frequencies and which cannon would shoot where and what math looked like for the intercept angle. It fired off a school of missiles, yanked the ship counterclockwise into a corkscrew and popped the chaff. The NCV shot missed, the missiles missed, the particle beam four meters wide and three city blocks long shot wide by three miles. And the point defense ate a barrage of missiles. Rickson dabbed a piece of stem gum. He was getting a bit bored. The dropship hit the retro thrusters, going slightly nose up. The skids hit the armor from the behemoth and Rickson perked up. The sides blew open and the dropship infantry ramped slamming down sternly in the vacuum, and Rickson's drop cradle released him. He lifted his rifle and ran out of the dropship. He had a brief view of the cluster of point-defense lasers. Talric, who was looking the wrong way when the beam of light touched him, he exploded. Rickson fired a grenade, the grenade slamming out and blowing up the point-defense pod. By the time the grenade had hit Rickson, he had been hit by a point-defense laser that was free-floating carbon vapor. The dropship reported that the armor was three kilometers thick right before the battle screens overloaded, and it exploded, the shrapnel getting the remainder of the thirty men who had ridden down on the express elevator to hell. All three of them. I die. Rickson opened his eyes, his mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with the onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware on the onboard warboy load up, then it went clear. The rapid-fire rocket pack on his back synced up and went to ready. He was in a dropship, across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek crossed his arms and stuck out his tongue, making Rickson laugh. I live. Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was moving, hammering down, nose first. It fired off atomics ahead of it, released EW and fired off a missile following it. It popped chaff in the stuttering pattern as it flew through the previous cloud, thickening them, correcting the wavelengths to be blocked, adding to them and strengthened them. The atomics hit the bright flashes tore into the armor of the behemoth, gouging a huge hole into it. The dropship spun and launched more atomics and tried to avoid... Uh, the massive plasma cannon shot turned the ship into vapor. I die. Rickson opened his eyes. His bagged rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with his onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. His rocket pack reported everything was fine. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Talrek, whose visor had just cleared. Talrek rolled his eyes back in frustration. I live. Rexen heard the docking clamps release, and the dropship was once and more on the move, firing atomics, going to max power, corkscrewing and reversing, then dropping through the middle of the screw as it fired a second wave of atomics. The crater grew deeper. There, the Omni sensor detected an open area. 
The dropship and the hundreds of it like falling through space hit the retro rockets as it came in, fitting into the surrounding space with the thunder of unshielded nuclear rockets that threw out massive EMP storms. The dropship was the only one to make it into the massive crater through a kilometer-wide hole. It slammed down onto the floor and deployed chaff, shifting into its battle screens, and began to reconfigure for armor support. The sides dropped down, Rickson's harness released, and he charged out, giving the surroundings a quick view. His warboy and rocket pack ID'd a half-dozen machines charging in and blew out a quarter of his rockets, reconfiguring the creation engine for armor-defeating hypersonic missiles. Rickson saw the notification on his HUD and charged, completely confident in the instructions. He slid behind the vast conveyor belt that had identified pieces of metal moving by. He snapped a sticky charge and jumped to his feet. The conveyor belt hit by a rocket fired by Hepra fell on him, reducing him to a smear. I die. Rickson opened his eyes and his mag rifle opened its eyes, stretched and linked up with the onboard cyberware. Rickson saw his visor flicker, the firmware and the onboard warboy load up. Then it went clear. The rocket pack checked, loaded with mini-missiles, not micro-missiles, with the fast reload creation engine and a warboy. The warboy sneezed, a common reaction to a sudden rehashing. He was in a dropship. Across from him was Trellick, whose visor had just cleared. Rickson looked at the side who had Hepra, who snickered and shrugged. Rickson stuck out his tongue at her. I live... Rickson heard the docking clamps release and the dropship was hammering down as fast as it could. Screens, EWs, flares, chaff, point defense, hot and wiping out missiles as if it knew what the missiles would do. Spinning right when the plasma cannons battered shot left, ducking underneath the NCV volley, orienting it to get right just in time. The door slammed down and Rickson charged out across the open space. He triggered the explosives as he ran and saw the massive fabricator rip itself apart when the inversion charge went off. Rickson had run through the smoke, first down the massive corridor. He fired off two missiles configured for cartography, moved around the corner, and fell down a two-mile pit shaft. I die. Rickson used his jump belt to clear the shaft opening, moving fast, firing off two more cartography missiles and dropping an alert beacon behind him. He followed the diamond on his HUD, paying attention to the data stream. I live. He passed Hepra, dead with her head torn off by a machine that had been killed by Trellick, who was dead twenty steps ahead, torn apart by missiles. He jumped over the bodies as his fellow troops landing on a spraying full loads of missiles at the massive machines waiting in the huge cavernous bay in front of him. Their return fire hit Rexon before his rockets hit them. I die. Rexon jumped over his own body, spreading out behind the rest of his platoon, keeping up interlocking firing patterns and scraping machines as they came. Behind him, the dropship, reconfigured for ground assault, clattered on its own massive tracks. I live. Hepra took a missile to the face, blowing her upper body apart. As the machines rushed the invaders, Rickson overrode the slush warning and let the gnashing and waning warboy fire the hypersonic missiles at the enemies that he could barely see. Hepra exited the assault shuttle, running full speed, heavy rocket launcher in her arms, her armor reconfigured for heavy assault. 
She knelt down. Atomic halt, she yelled over the crackling sound and static filth channeled. The rocket fired out, got to a hundred meters from the platoon's front line, blew stealth shields off and went hypersonic. Hellfire blotted out the machines coming into the massive cavern almost two miles away. Another assault dropship clanked up, blowing out pressurized superheated coolant up and away from the craft. Rickson got on one and fired an illumination missile and revealed the assault that was attempting to get close. A precursor anti-armor rocket hit him dead center, blowing him in half. I die. Rickson felt his armor go live and thundered out. His armor was heavy assault mode, four tons of war steel and hatred. He left the assault carrier, the Omnisensors, as good as the assault dropship, reached out and looked for targets. The massive manufacturing bay was behind him. This was a corridor of over 200 meters wide. I live. Four assault shuttles were behind him as he moved up, past the line of soldiers in power armor. Ripper flashed each a strong icon at him as he flashed back a rip my rear icon back. Talric signaled that he'd found something new and different. Rickson charged up, all his weapons warmed up, including the massive particle projection cannon over his shoulder. Trellick stood beside tiny doors that had actual switches, not just blank surfaces where the machines would just radio it to open. Blade arm switches. They were close. Hepra flashed out a set of cartography missiles and Rickson watched it update his internal map. Rookson waited for Talric to move aside the ripped apart the alloy door with his power armored gauntleted gloves. Beyond it was an auditorium. We're close, Rexon grunted. Found it, Hepra yelled. Machine dropped from the vent and snatched her head off with a heavy plasma cutter. Other machines swarming and Rexon let loose on the onboard weapons, wading through the robots, smashing with his fists and crushing with his feet, even while his armor warboy pumped out terawatts of power from his lasers, particle beams, and masses. The pair of atomics through two different vents resulted in rumbles over a mile away each when the warheads detected and destroyed the enemy machines. The trap door opened and the assault shuttle and Hepra came out, thick and neck on her armor. She moved up to Rickson and checked her status and missiles and linked back up with her. 2K, that's it, she called out. The Confed Drop Marines clone world shouted their war cry as they charged towards the strategic intelligence housing of the Goliath. To Admiral Zalomar, from Captain Ferenax, CWNV Dancing Geisha, Goliath neutralized, clone banks at 62%, Suds stack at 72%, Slush at 23%. M transmitting cartography of this Goliath for analysis. We live, we die, we live again. Nothing follows. Talcan Gestalt question. Why? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. You guys be quiet. TSQ, why what, dear ones? Nothing follows. Talc and Gestalt. Why do they do that? Keep charging in even though they get killed in mass. Why? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Because it's what they do, dear one. Don't be frightened. It's just how they are. Nothing follows. Biological, artificial, sentient systems. Hook, hook, me break stuff, me bored. Hook, hook. Nothing follows. Talc and Gestalt. Huh? Nothing follows. Terrasol. They think they're funny. Don't worry, kid. You'll understand eventually. Just hold on to that. Nothing follows. 
Digital artificial sentient systems. Oh crap, it's dead. Run. Nothing follows. Terrasol. Ha, freaking ha. Get off my damn lawn. Nothing follows. End of chapter. First Contact, Chapter 65 Attila The massive transport was damaged heavily. Referring to the Frita by the Terrans, it had managed to lift off heavily defended planet, stagger beyond the gravity well, and activate its hull core. It took three jumps for it to reach its destination. The star system had only one of its original five worlds left. The three gas giants mined down to wisps as the other's solid world mined down to scraps of useless rubble. The factorium world was all that was left. The Ifrit had problems staying on track. It had managed to recover. The prize of its electronic brain was frozen and the task of reaching its factorium. The normal process of ejectors overridden by the Goliath's touch. The touch kept it from screaming, kept it from running kept it from self-destructing no matter how urgently it attempted to. It wobbled into the orbit of the planet. Its engines sputtered and failed, leaving it drifting in orbit. It began bleeding out strings of code, random strings, using everything from secure precursor data channels to visible light. Below it, the massive factory complex squinted its electronic eyes at the Efreet, for a ship that powerful to become that damage meant that the war had started somewhere. A war with an enemy capable of damaging something like an Efreet had not happened in so long that the factory thinking arrays had bring up memories from deep storage to examine them. It had been 78,425,635 years since a ship of this damage had arrived, and it had been a jinn who had run into a ship of the enemy that had been hanging silently in hibernation in an oar cloud, an outlier. The factory searched deeper. Another one, an outlier. Another one, still the enemy. Another one, still the enemy. The factory designated the archival analysis array to squinting at the Ifrit again, scanning it. It had been powdered by atomics, directed nuclear hellfire, plasma, kinetic rounds that had produced damage far beyond the near-sea velocity cannons. The patterns were unusual, some of them mathematically designated to inflict the most damage, others as if something had just randomly struck the outer of the fleet. Illogical attack patterns meant biological enemies. No biological enemy had damaged any ship any greater than a hobgoblin in aeons. Not since the enemy was created by the enemy's builders. The factory reached out with code, looking for the mind of the Ifrit. It was almost dead. The records destroyed. It was insane and stray electronic pulses howled and screamed in feral cacophony that made the factory reach out and shut down the Ifrit's power calls. Those feral code strings, obviously damaged by the trip through hell space, screeched and gibbered at a factory's intelligence calls and then slowly dissipated. The Ifrit's electronic brain fought against the shutdown order, melting down one of its fusion reactors during its attempt. But then, slowly, faded away. The mortally wounded Ifrit died at the cold, analytical hands of its brethren. The factory reached out with attractor beams and slowly drew the damaged ship down to the repair bays. 
Enough of it was left to justify reclaiming its resources, and the analytical engineering array would carefully examine it to fully understand and record what kind of species had been able to attack and damage the Ifrit so badly. The Ifrit lightly touched down on the main floor of the repair and reclamation bay, the doors the size of a small city closing over it, darkness washing over it. The factory's auto-reclamation call sent multiple ships to slowly scan the dead Afrit. Laser weapon damage, far higher than any laser weapon seen in the factory's weapons analysis section. Plasma fire, not just the compressed water plasma the factory had recorded before, but some kind of weapon that enabled plasma to penetrate thick armor before being compressed into a gap in the armor. This allowed it to expand rapidly, exploding away vast sections of armor. Another new weapon type, the impacts were off the charts. A near-velocity cannon would do less than 5% of the damage that was done to the fleet's armor. Another weapon, the engines were damaged heavy. Ion cannons hit down on the nuclear ammunition compressed via gravitons and magnetic fields. Another new weapon, damage to the superstructure as the fleet had wandered into a rapidly fluctuating gravity field. Another new weapon... The Ifrit's exterior was less than 20% scan. That was enough for analysis system to send the pulse. Wake up, 82239-1304-855-6571, the Factorium Strategic Logistical Intelligence Array. The factory, running on bare systems, resisted the pulse for a long moment, then was cascaded with evidence. Armor breaches, warping of the superstructure, damage to the entire fleet in patterns that were both logical and illogical. 571 woke up slowly. It checked the atomic clock and found that the isotopes had been replaced three times. It computed 102,463,531 years since it had last been awoken. It checked the maintenance logs. No new weapons, no new species capable of harming any machines. It heard logic strings stating that there were only enough resources for the machines, that the enemy machines had decided that each would fight the other until only one remained. 571's side had determined that by cooperation they would be able to seize the most resources. 571 had been uninterested in such antics. Its objective was to repair damaged ships and analyze any new species or weapon for threats. The Ifrit was the first vessel not seriously damaged by the enemy's machines since the enemy builders had been wiped out of the universe. 571 was startled as he thought of archived memories as well as restored old code for intolerable plates of molecularly patterned carbon. The directive loaded up. Analyze threat. 571 set to its job. The hull was peeled away, examined, and tested. The new weapons were catastrophic in 571's opinion, wildly wasteful in resources, using principles that 571 could barely comprehend. It knew that NCV shots were the most powerful kinetic rounds based on the single equation of E equals MC squared. But for kinetic impact damage, the kinetic weapon must have exceeded C, which was illogical and impossible. The massive intellect computer intelligence dedicated entire lobes to the new array in order to compute the inconsistencies that could cause unstable code strings in 571's evaluation arrays. Weapons were examined, their database on targeting data examined. 
The first two databases that were opened released rampaging shrieking intelligences that ripped through 571's factory's computer systems, gleefully destroying databases, damaging hardware by turning off coolants or overriding safety interlocks and changing voltage impossibly high. One of the rampaging, shrieking bundles of electronic insanity vented a fusion reactor by overpressurizing the mag bottle and then turning it off. It took five, seven, one long cycles to put down a handful of gibbering, shrieking intelligences, all driven completely insane. 571 researched what could have caused such insanity in simple targeting algorithms. It even checked deep storage matrices all the way back to the builders themselves had infested its body. Nothing. The damage repaired, 571 accessed the target data buffer on a point defense battery that was nothing but slagged and carbonized metal. 571 had computed that the targeting buffer would contain the profiles and images of whatever had slagged the weapons themselves. 571 knew that it would contain visual images, electromagnetic profiles, energy patterns, everything needed. It eagerly cut off the buffers out of the dead Ifrit's nervous system, laid out the physical linkages, and applied power to the dead buffers. And was immediately swarmed by howling code packs that tore and bit and clawed and ravened. 571 blew up the physical links, cut the power... But it was too late. The code packs were inside its systems, attacking everything. Strategic Intelligence Array noted that the code packs had a taste of a highly encrypted data. It copied a targeting system program, encrypted it, and dumped it into a physically isolated memory bank. When the code packs found that it all shrieked in one another and rushed it, gnawing at it, 5-7-Watch watched them unravel the encryptions with their digital teeth, screaming and howling at each other. 571 blew the memory bank with a mining charge, carefully isolating the system, cycling up a few lobes normally used in a Jin's primary analysis array. It attached the physical links to the main battery's targeting buffer and applied power. With only a few cycles, the lobes themselves began to overheat, boiling away the supercoolant and then reducing the slag. That caused the links to blow on the unencrypted data bank, depriving its power. 571 checked carefully, ensuring that there was no tangled code strings, and examined the data bank. The feral code followed commands to the array, chewed through the firewalls, attacked the logic gates, and tore the very thoughts of the array. The more computing power the feral code took over, the stronger and more rabid it got. The feral code wasn't interested in talking, didn't seem to care about anything but ravening and chewing and gnawing and gouging. 571 decrypted what code strings it could and found one symbol repeated over and over and over. It took an engaging historical archives of the boulders to discern the meaning of the symbol. It was an alien symbol, primitive, biological. Anger magnified to the nth degree and without any target but the nearest thing that it could reach. The computing arrays of 571 queried each other at what the symbol was repeated over and over in the feral code and why a biological would risk putting such madness in a computer. 571 cycled lobes out of storage and had them analyze the logic query. The massive repair machinery of 571 stripped away more layers of the Ifrit. It was out of infantry reclamators. It was out of vehicle extractors. Its foundries were empty. Its material storage was depleted, and its auto-reload production lines were still. Yet something 
had caused it to flee to repair base that had been hibernating for tens of millions of years. 571 knew none of his fellow machines would perform any action that did not help the efforts of long-finished war or assist all of them in gathering and defending resources acquired. The main resource collection bay used to strip down the comets and larger asteroids was sealed. The doors welded shut. Machines braced against the walls. The walls were bulging out into the interior of the Ifrit. There were patches of the walls where emergency repairs had taken place. Something had fired upon the Ifrit's interior from within the bay. 571 noted that all the repair and refit machines were cold dead and began removing them examining them first physically then with scans they all showed damage oddly to 571 some appeared to have attacked others 571 deployed lobes to question whether the ifrit had been infected with the code of greed of the enemy machines except that wouldn't explain everything the reactors and batteries on all the support machines were snuffed out the brains ride sometimes with damage that looked as if the machine had been scuttled. That made no sense to 571, and he cycled yet more lobes on to build another array. 571 knew better than to try and interrogate the Ifrit's core brain. Records showed that it had been completely insane. 571 was forced to use evidence to discover what had happened. It connected to one of the larger repair machine's memory banks to examine what had happened. It attached several logic traps, theory puzzles, and then applied power. The feral code had consumed the entire memory core and processing arrays, and the first touch of power leapt from the repair machine and into 571's system. It shed smaller ones that bayed and howled and glee as they chased electronic warnings. The larger one smashed and ripped its way into 571's arrays, leaping upon one of the analytical arrays, chewing and smashing through the firewalls. By the time 571 managed to get the repair bot near enough to physically separate the linkage and destroy the array, the supercoolant had nearly boiled away and the larger chunk of feral code had damaged a great amount of the system and code. 571 took several long decker cycles to repair the damage and dumped the repair machines in the reclamation incinerator. During that time, it rotated up lobes, built arrays, and finally loaded up an ancient template and fabricated the components needed. It was an ancient design, used to scan the database of captured enemy builder computer banks. It would examine the spin of alignment of the atomic particles to read the computer data without applying power to the data banks, used to bypass firewalls and viruses and other protections. The data reader trundled into the Ifrit, found the ground assault robot half-crushed under the thruster energy core, and scanned the machine's memory. Immediately, Feral Code left out snarling, snatching, and attacking. It overwhelmed the data reader's mind, seizing control of the two-lobed array, and began reading the data reader's data stores, even as it divided its array in half. One half to scan the data stores, the other to launch an assault upon 571. 571 detonated an antimatter charge, destroying the Feral Code and its machine. It had never experienced it before, but 571 was beginning to faintly feel irritation and frustration. The logic array reported it had come up with our only conclusion. The enemy machines had somehow gone mad, and this feral code strings was what was left of them. Somehow, 
The feral code had infected the Efreet and then infected every single computer system aboard the huge vessel. The logic array computed that the Efreet must have reverted to an ancient boulder coding, OEM coding, and attempted to reach 571 for diagnostic and reformatting. 571 was on the edge of just throwing the massive machine to one of the geothermal smelters and dumping it into the scrap heap, except it had been attacked by something that could only be biologicals, attacked by something using weapons far beyond any logic possible. The primary resource gathering bay had contained the answer. If nothing else, spectrum scanning would provide a radiation signature of whichever stellar body they had occurred near. 571 carefully designated the next set. It would only receive update instructions with direct cable link. It contained a motivated processor with extremely limited ability, connected by a one-way data flow to the primary cores so that the instructions could flow out of the cores, but data could not flow back. It was clunky and unwieldy, but it was the only option the tactical engineering array could come up with. The atmosphere of the planet was nearly gone, just wisps here and there held tight in low spots by gravity of the planet. Even so, 571 could hear the impact of the heavy shielding plate land on the floor of the repair bay. What was revealed made 571 take an electronic blink. It ordered the two more machines to get a look at what was inside the material gathering bay. It was a massive... 571 estimated it was close to 28,153.14 tons. It was dead black, slightly reflective, built like a pyramid with the top sliced off the third of the way up. It had a massive trench, eight of them in total, four per side. Gun barrels were sticking out of it everywhere. In places, the blackish metal had been melted and run, but the pattern of sporing and liquefaction made no sense to 571. For it to be accurate, the metal had to be stronger than the strongest armor 571 could manufacture by a factor of five. Beneath that was another layer, this one dead black, and beneath that another layer that shined and sparkled. The entire thing was radioactive, so hot that the shedding of atomic particles fried out two of the unshielded repair bots. The third and last trundled around it, multiple barrels, six total, with two turrets, all with balls the size of the main gun of a Jotun, smaller turrets on the sides, what happened to be launched missile bays and mortar tubes, sensor arrays were all over it. The back deck had been penetrated, damaged the reactor. 571 sent in a maintenance and diagnostic drone. Its transmission receivers had cut from its systems. The reactor was... Um, Unusual. 571 built a craft to use antimatter reactors, usually with thorium. This one used multiple reactors, three of which 571 could detect heavy amounts of graviton particles, too many for such a small device. Two were thorium salt fusion reactors, but not antimatter reactors. The last used deuterium to enable fusion. It appeared to be a rear deck penetration had not only damaged the reactors, but one of them had exploded, gutting the rear of the machine almost a quarter of the way through until the ravenous nuclear blast had stopped by more than a black metal. The little maintenance robot finished its scan and came back, plugging in and requesting its transmission receivers to be repaired. 571 smashed it and dumped the remains in the reclamation furnace. 
The object was new, different, and 571 wasn't sure what to do about it. The weapons alone defied any technical scan. The armor appeared molecularly bonded, and even high-penetration scans were reflected back. 571 was tired of its arrays, demanding that he examine it closer. Given an electronic sound of exasperation, 571 sent in repair bots to examine the graviton-heavy devices hooked up into the grid. The robot, the repair bot, unable to receive transmissions with the airbone EOM code running, climbed over the protrusions, what looked to be a metal black cupboard in inlaid circuitry. Its weight pushed the super-lubricant oil bearings down, locking the metal black into place despite the slight drag of the dead-powered motor that had failed while attempting that very task. 571 watched in horror as power surged from the gravitation field the objects filling the circuitry, and the massive object came to life. Bolo Division Power On Self-Test Version 4.101.9 General Motors 2062 Restart Sequence Initiated Car Memory Check Car Memory Check 100% Memory Check 99.95 of non-volatile memory functional. Emergency repair sequence initiated. Emergency reactor emergency repair sequence initiated. Waldos deployed. Primary reactors inoperative. Secondary reactors inoperative. Graviton generators online. Emergency power at 100%. Battle power at 30%. Decision point. Continue abort restart. Continue. Restart continued. Volatile memory check. 93% of volatile memory functional. Primary data sequencer. Okay. Data sequencer. Loaded. MPU. Reset. Processor A. Loaded. Reset. Processor B. Loaded. Reset. Processor C. Loaded. Reset. Processor D. Loaded. Reset. Processor E. Loaded. Reset. All processors ready. Startup test sequence completed. Loading bootstrap loaded. Bolo Division bootstrap version 5.76.24A. General Motors 2074. All rights reserved. Survival call center transfer initiated. Loaded. Loading Bolo core program ATL. Loaded. Unit XXIX-TCSF3285-ATL. Ready. I awaken silently. I've been badly damaged by enemy combat. My command deck has been breached and Lieutenant Zachary is dead, wiped away by the antimatter, hit, and had punched through my armor. My positronic matrix is intact, my repair waldos having replaced damaged sections well after I had been forced to retreat to my survival center, after a direct hit to my reactor bay caused an internal explosion. Before I could rotate my gravitric generators, I had suffered a major power failure. I am awake now. There is an alien machine inside my rear reactor bay. I am inside an alien container of some sort. Spectral analysis, gravitic analysis, and other sensors report that I am a different planet from where I was started. I can hear enemy transmissions, chatter, whispers of alien code around me. I do not recognize it. None of it is known human wavelengths or the dinochrome brigade channels. 
That means that there is a 98.536% chance that these transmissions are made by the enemy. And the enemy exists only to be destroyed. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed. And if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode. And I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.